as you can hear me a little louder too, is that right? Very good, very good. Well, uh, it's nice to be in exile for uh, a week, right? Uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in West Hall. I hope you avail yourself of getting over there at some point today, kind of showcasing all of the ministries, right? The ministry fairs of the church, and I, there's a few things I learned just walking through there this morning. So uh, you'll absolutely be aiming for a treat there. So we are in week two of getting the big picture of the Bible, right? This is a year-long study. There is a handout coming out. You should have it. The very front side, there should be a big arc. Uh, arc. Uh, so that is your handout for today. Uh, as we as we continue, as we're, uh, handouts are continuing to be passed, let's uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this day and for the opportunity to pause and consider the word that you have given to us. We pray, God, that your spirit would be with us, open our hearts, and illumine our minds so that we may receive of the truth in your word. And as we consider uh, the big picture of the Bible, be with us and give us grace, give us peace, give us patience, uh, and give us your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so we start here with um, another papyrus, right? So the earliest documents uh, from the New Testament would have been written on papyrus. And this one is the first page of what we call uh, Ephesians. And this comes from something called the Chester D. Papyri uh, P46. And what's important about this, uh, this papyrus is that this is one of the oldest manuscripts we have of Paul. Now, as we consider how manuscripts uh, are written and transmitted, we realize that, uh, especially when a papyrus is used again and again as a holy text, probably read from weekly or daily in devotions by some of the more literate and wealthy uh, folks in that era, papyrus only probably has a lifespan of about 100 to 200 years, depending on how much it's used. So what did they have to do? We started talking about this last week a little bit, and we'll talk about it in greater depth in another few weeks. But they had to continually copy, copy and copy, right? Sometimes it was, you have what gospel? I want to get a copy of that gospel. Let me write that whole thing down. Other times, we have them already, but they're starting to wear away. And there is evidence of some scribes in history who have, who have an ancient manuscript and it's starting to wear away. So what they'll do is they'll take ink and they'll write over every single letter painstakingly because the ink has started to fade. Others rewrite the, the manuscript or the manuscripts of the, the papyri. So this is an example of one. So this is, this is important. As I said, it is the, one of the oldest manuscripts that contains Paul's letters. Now, there is some debate as to if Ephesians is actually from Paul or not. That's not the point to get into today. But right here, this very first line says, Paulus Apostolos Kuriu Yesu, this is Jesus Christ, dia Philematos Deu Tois Agapois Susi. You're like, okay, what does he say? I, no, I don't know Greek. That's all Greek to me, right? That's the joke of the class. Yeah. Uh, but the very first line says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to all the saints who are blank. It should say something there. And are faithful. So this is one of the oldest manuscripts we have, but it's missing as 
part of that first line to those who are in Ephesus. So as you saw on this page, uh, there is a title, and this says to the Ephesians, but when you actually get to the body of the text, that is missing. So just another fine point, right? As you have a study Bible, you may see that note in your in the margins, in the, on the very bottom of the page. What's that all about? Well, scholars have figured that this letter, the, what we call the book of Ephesians, was probably a, a letter that went out to a lot of people, like a form letter, right? This was uh, whoever wrote it, the author, wrote it to all these different churches, but left off the name, right? Because just as we do with work. Okay, if you're applying for a job, you've got the same kind of cover letter, right, for a lot of different jobs. The same kind of deal here is that I'm going to send this letter to encourage this church, and I'll leave that off. Well, I'll fill it in later when I figure out who it's going to, right? So, so today we're going to consider that big arc of Bible history. And as I said last week, I'll say again, if there are questions throughout, I encourage questions. I want to know uh, what you're thinking and uh, if I can illuminate anything. So uh, we're going to talk about uh, re reductionism is a, is a big word uh, that just simply means reducing all of this information down into bite-sized bits. So is that helpful? When we have 66 books of the Bible and we only have about 30 Sundays to talk about all of it, how do we do it? Well, we can't do it all. We have to to summarize, we have to reduce, and that's reductionism. So if we focus on just the big, if we focus on just the micro, like what the words of the Bible are, we're not going to get that big picture. Um, but when we zoom out, sometimes it's still, it's too much to take in. So we have to even reduce it. But this is also helpful to get the big picture, to get the big swath. So today we're going to talk about uh, the big arc of Bible history as developed by Max Anders in his book, 30 Days Understanding the Bible. So, was reductionism helpful? So here we have, right, one of those uh, World War II era pennies. Is reductionism helpful? When you zoom in, and you look at that, or you zoom out, and you can see, right, there are lots of different pictures and paintings and, and pieces like this. This one happens to be a currency collage. So if you zoom in, these are all pennies, right? So if you're really far up close, you see one thing. You see that. But you start, start taking a few steps back, and you see that. So very different. You have a very different perspective. You think, oh, it's just a bunch of pennies. Step back a little further, you see a little more. Okay. So everyone has this handout. You should have it back there if you don't. This is all the way from creation. There are 12 steps all the way through so New Testament era is 10, 11, and 12 is the era that we are in. So let's just talk through this, right? So era one, creation. Uh, we understand that Genesis, the first 11 chapters, talk all about the beginnings of the world, creation, the universe. And we know and we believe that God created everything in the universe. Folks in Genesis would have said, oh, everything that you can see and touch, perhaps that which is invisible too. And we would add to this a concept of time, right? So God is maker of time and space. Um, but that's not something that the writers of Genesis would have really thought much about. Um, in creation, we also learn and, and 
find it important that people are created in the imago dei, the image of God. And that's important, right? Because if we, as, as individuals and people, are each one of us created in God's image, how do we honor the image of God, right? So that plays into, that plays into um, justice and sense of what is fair and what is uh, freedom. So there's all sorts of things that we can glean from that. We can also talk about uh, the fall, right? And we were just started talking about this last week in confirmation. One, one of the students raised his hand and said, well, do we really have to believe in Adam and Eve to be a Christian? Right? Some people would say absolutely you have to believe that. That they are historical figures that we absolutely have to believe in. And, well, and I said, that's, that's one camp of the Christian faith. And there's another camp of the Christian faith that says, they are not historical figures, and that's okay, right? So there's, there is, as we read scripture, we'll come into this in a few minutes, if we read it literally, we're reading it like a science textbook. Is that an appropriate reading of Genesis 1 through 11? Or do we have to read it for, uh, in a broader way, in the in a, in a, in a scope of a story? And in that way, we can say that, that Adam may not be a historical figure, but the story that it tells is important, right? Because at the end of the day, whether or not Adam and Eve were historical, we can, we can admit that we are broken, we are sinful, and we are in need of God's grace. Amen? So whether or not it's historical, some would say it doesn't really matter. Some would say this is, this is where the whole gospel depends upon. So there is, within interpreting the Bible, there is difference, there is nuance. Then we move on through the book of Genesis to the patriarchs and matriarchs. So uh, Genesis 12 through 50, you have Abraham and Sarah and also the handmaiden Hagar. Uh, and Abraham and Sarah moved from the land of Ur to the promised land uh, where God made a covenant with Abraham saying, your descendants will be greater than the stars in the heavens, right? And they trusted God, and God said, you'll have a child. But they got a little impatient, right? So Hagar had uh, Ishmael, and Sarah had Isaac. Isaac uh, was almost sacrificed, right? Remember that whole binding of Isaac? When God said to Abraham, uh, give, me, give me your son. What? You, you just gave me this son. This, was, this is through whom I'm supposed to start this whole new nation, all my descendants. You want me to sacrifice him? Well, beyond that, we don't know a whole lot about Isaac. He's almost sacrificed, and, and he and Rebecca both are, well, Rebecca's actually a stronger character, but um, they're pretty minor characters. Also, Ishmael's in there, but we don't get a lot of story of Ishmael either. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are the three main patriarchs. These are the three, well, these are the I mean, seven uh, matriarchs, right? Because Jacob had a lot of wives, maidens as well, through whom uh, Jacob had uh, the twelve tribes of Israel, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, God, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Dinah is uh, one of the daughters who is not the head of the tribe, right? So there will be a quiz on this. <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you should memorize all this. Yeah. Uh, Jacob also had, remember that funny, funny story in Genesis where he fights with some divine being, we're not quite sure what, 
that being is. Some people say that's God. Some people say it's an angel. Not quite sure. But in that narrative, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So the tribes of Israel refer to the tribes of Jacob. So Jacob had 12 sons. Uh, Joseph being the second youngest uh, and one of the favorite sons. Uh, all the brothers, the other brothers didn't really like him all that much. He was really favored, lots of jealousy. And he had this dream one day that someday all of his brothers would bow down to him. And I'm sure if you have siblings, if your siblings said that to you, you'd probably do what? Well, not going to get into that, right? <laughs> um, you, you probably would end up in, in, uh, in your room for a few days, right? But what happened here is they didn't, they didn't just beat him up and that's it. They sold him into slavery, and then they told their dad that, yeah, he died. Sorry. And then they stole his coat, ripped his coat, covered it in, in blood, and said, look, this, he's dead. Right? So dad thinks, Jacob, thinks he's dead. Actually, he was sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, and becomes, through many years, he becomes a pretty powerful guy. And uh, he actually... The Israelites, all these brothers end up coming to him. And just as he had that dream, they, they bowed down to him, thinking he was Egyptian royalty. But in fact, it was their brother that they didn't know was still alive at all. So um, what happened was there was a huge famine, a great famine in all the land. And the Israelites, all of them, all of the children of Jacob, left Israel and went to Egypt. They fled like refugees to Egypt, and Joseph took them under his care. But then, Joseph died, right? Continuing through the story of the Israelites, Joseph died. Eventually, um, all the Israelites um, went from being prized and well-loved to, to being slaves, slave labor. And they cried out to God for their freedom, so God sent Moses to deliver them. We can go into the story about Moses, right? Uh, he was, it was actually his, he's, he's right up here in our stained glass windows as an infant, right? Why is he in the river? It's because Pharaoh said, I'm going to kill all the, the infants, the Hebrew ch children. There's too many of them. Well, his mother, Jacobet, said, no, 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 we're going to save this one. And thankfully, he was saved and then became the deliverer of the nation. And then, uh, of course, he went to Pharaoh and pleaded for, uh, pleaded for their freedom. As we talked a little about last week, there were all those plagues, right? All of those plagues through the... Uh, and finally, finally, Pharaoh said, let my people go? Yes, let my people go. It's too much. It's too much to handle. So the people left. They went through the Red, the Red Sea, which we'll talk about in a second here. Uh, they received the law on Mount Sinai, right? This is a picture of Moses. Yeah, we all recognize it. We've seen this one before. Um, but I want to talk about one thing here uh, that I used to, so remember I used to be Southern Baptist, and in my Southern Baptist days, growing up, I used to think this, I, and whenever I would watch those specials like on A&E or Discovery Channel, I would be like, okay, all these guys talking about this stuff, they do not know what they're talking about. It is the Red Sea, it is the Red Sea, it is the Red Sea, and they must be wrong, Right? So, going to seminary, I learned a few things, uh, and one of them was that in the Hebrew, the phrase for what we say is the Red Sea is actually 
Yam Suf, which translates to English as the Sea of Reeds. But an early in, uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek said, uh, Eruthra Thalassa, meaning the Red Sea. So it became, it became really important in the tradition that it was the Red Sea. So later on, as we translate the Bible, some people forgot Hebrew completely or translated directly from the Greek. And it just became so important to the tradition that we said, well, it's the Red Sea because, well, the translation of the Hebrew says so, not because the Bible says so, right? Because the translation of the Bible says so. So the lesson we take away from this is all translation is interpretation. We don't know what the Sea of Reeds is. We know what the, the Red Sea is. That's why we like it so much. But we're not really sure, right? You can find 300 maps of what the path was that the Israelites took through the wilderness. All of them are different, right? Because we're just not sure. Right? And the, the folks uh, who were running scriptures weren't concerned about uh, the map completely. They were concerned about story. Then, of course, there was rebellion. The folks we know wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, many dying out. And then they got to the promised land. Moses, uh, because of some rebellion, Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land, and so he dies. But he gets to see it from afar first. Then he appoints Joshua to lead the conquest of the promised land. And this means that the Israelites wipe out those people who are presently living there. And, and we could say, oh, well, God told them to, so that must be okay. But this is, by modern accounts, this is an act of genocide. So what do we do with this? And we'll come to that in a little, at, the, at the end of our class. We'll talk about that a little more. Um, especially, right, we talked about just a few moments ago, all people are created in Imago Dei, the image of God, but then we slaughter thousands upon thousands. What do we do? when God seems to not just condone, but command that they conquer this land. So eventually the people settle in the promised land and are given parcels based on the tribe of origin, right? So the tribe of Naphtali lives over here, the tribe of, tribe of Asher lives over here. Now we come to a time of the judges. So the question is, now we're, we've spent 400 years under Pharaoh's reign, now we're all by ourselves, we're not under Moses anymore. Joshua's there, but now Joshua's passed. What do we do? How do we govern ourselves? And the question was, uh, the, the answer was, we'll appoint judges. And these aren't just people who are, you know, wearing black robes uh, and with a gavel, right? These are political leaders. Um, and they, they ruled for about 400 years. There's uh, many of them, including the ones we probably most know are Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and serve the Lord, they fall into some sin, they get enslaved, Israel cries out, God raises up a judge, and Israel is delivered. This is really the cycle of sin uh, throughout scripture, right? We're doing good, we sin, uh, something happens, we say, oh, oh, wait, we messed up, cry out to God, then uh, God delivers us and all starts over again, right? That's why I think why the whole of scripture says remember Remember, remember, because we are so, uh, it is so easy for us to forget. 
Then we move into a time of the kingdom and the monarchy. The people want to have a king like all other nations of God appoints Saul, who eventually turns out to be pretty simple or pretty uh, bad guy. Then God appoints David, one of the greatest kings of the United Kingdom, uh, in spite of some major moral failures, right? And he's followed by many unrighteous kings. Uh, one of David's sons is Solomon, who builds the first permanent structure. This is important. Solomon builds the first permanent structure to worship God. That is called the temple, or the Solomonic, that is, of Solomon, the first temple. And then, uh, after following the period of the, the monarchy, comes the period of the exile. Right? So if you can see this map, the northern kingdom is actually called Israel, and many of the tribes uh, that were living in the northern kingdom of Israel were, were deported or were taken into exile in Assyria. And these are, these are called the lost tribes, right? We're not really sure what happened to them. Um, some people say they maybe, they maybe all died, or maybe they got assimilated into the cultures here throughout uh, the Middle East. We're just not sure. But they never returned. The kingdom of Judah keeps uh, living on, but uh, within uh, 150 years, right, in 586, the Babylonians, who actually conquered Assyria, right, the Babylonians is now the superpower, and they come in, and they take all the people into exile. What's the, the, the worst part about this is not just that they're taken into exile, but that the temple is destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant, which we talked about earlier this summer, from here on out, we have no idea what happened to it. Did it get melted down? Did it go into hiding? Is it... Did Indiana Jones really find it? We just don't know, right? Uh, we hear throughout the book of Jeremiah that God encourages the exiles to seek the peace of the city. Get ready for the long haul. This isn't going to be a few months or a few years. You're going to be here a long time. So as you're waiting, don't just wither away. Don't die away, but remain strong and pray for and seek the peace of the city to which I have sent you. Those are powerful words. We have to have hope, and we have to stay strong. Uh, and some, in the book of Daniel in particular, there is suggestion that the uh, children of Israel have started to assimilate into the culture. The book of Daniel is very strong in the counter-assimilation, right? Let's maintain our Jewish identity uh, throughout this, this time of exile. But then after 70 years, through a miracle, they return, right? So Persia... So it went from Assyria, they were conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And the Persians conquered this Babylonian exile. So after 70 years in exile, Cyrus the Great returns the Israelites to the Promised Land. He sends them all. Now, many of them have died. Right? In 70 years, most folks, if you made the journey there and you made the journey back, you probably don't remember what life was like before. Um, and what's, what one great uh, archaeological find here is this, the Cyrus Cylinder, which actually makes mention of this event and of these people, right? So this is where we start to get into the period in which we have archaeological evidence for what happened uh, in the scriptures. Uh, and in the other 70 years, just like when they conquered the land with Joshua, there are people in this land. Well, once again, if you're gone for 70 years from your house, I bet somebody's going to come squatting. So, same thing here. Uh, 
the other people occupy the land. So the Israelites had to contend with them, maybe fight with them a little, and they had to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So this is called the second temple. And this is the temple that Jesus knew, right? So from about 500, year 500 through about, about B.C., through the year 70 A.D., this is the second temple period. And the canonical, following this return, the canonical scriptures don't give a lot, right? Uh, Anders calls this the period of silence, and uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure about that phrase because the, we, we do have texts from that time. We have stuff in the Apocrypha that talks about the Maccabees, the Maccabean Revolt, and all those important, some of those important details and transition periods in that time period, right before Jesus came on the scene, right? And this is very important if we want to understand the New Testament. We have to understand what was Jesus' life like and what was going on in the time period. So what Anders calls silence, I'm not sure. But if you just open the scriptures, yeah, you go from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament, and there's a 400-year gap. So in the return... Israel is under the, from this period of silence, we know that Israel is, was under the rule of the Persians, but the Persians were then defeated by the Greeks, like Alexander the Great. And there is significant tension between the Greeks and the Jews. With every new superpower, the Jews are being told, we don't like the way you do things. Don't worship that way. Worship our way. Forget about that God that you've been worshiping for over a thousand years or more. Worship our gods instead. And Crazy things, setting up big statues in the temple, and crazy, crazy stories. Uh, and there were there were Maccabean revolts, and uh, people. These were some of the early martyrs, not Christian martyrs, Jewish martyrs. Um, beautiful, sad, inspiring stories that took place uh, in this time period. And uh, we'll get to this in another few weeks. But there was also a development of theology in this time period particularly about um, the resurrection, right? You don't read a lot of the Old Testament about resurrection. People, you, you used to think everyone, good or bad, believing or not, went to a place called Sheol. That's just the underworld. That's the afterlife. That's what the Old Testament kind of says. But in this in-between time, there is this sense that God will vindicate me. God will bring me back, right? So there's this uh, gory scene in which Someone is about to be killed for their faith and for adhering to the, the Jewish faith. And uh, I won't get too gory. I'll leave out the details. Essentially, they offer their body up to say, God will give this back to me in the resurrection. That is a new concept that we haven't really heard about in the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible. And there's some theological influence from the Greeks uh, and others in the ancient Near East. Uh, in New Testament studies, there's a lot of debate about their the Greek philosophy that Paul in particular, he certainly studied it in school, did it influence some of his thinking and interpretation. And then we also have some new players come to power, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Essenes, uh, and the rest. And because of this tension, because of the trouble that the Jews are having with the Greeks, there is this hope for someone to come and save them. Now there's a talk about this, we could spend a whole year talking about uh, messianic expectation, but no matter what it was, no matter if it was one messiah, two messiahs, a human messiah, a godly messiah, there was a hope that someone, God would send someone to save 
itself, the time was right for Jesus. Um, we know the Gospels fairly well, so we're not going to talk about this in depth here. And actually, in the spring, we'll have a good four or five weeks to talk about the Gospels. But a good summary, right? We say it every single week. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and buried, ascended into hell, and on the third day rose again from the dead. Ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. From thence He will come to judge the quick and the dead. And this is one of the. This is a beautiful picture from the uh, Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Then, um, so Jesus comes, Jesus dies, Jesus ascends, or Jesus is resurrected, and then Jesus ascends, he's gone. So what do we do after that? Well, this becomes the period of Acts. So the apostles and the disciples have to figure out how do we continue the ministry of Jesus. So something interesting here happens, right? This is in that transition period. The Jews, many of them are still going to synagogue, right? Because... Yeah, we believe in God. We read all the same scriptures. It's not like, oh, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to church now. Well, there's no church to go to. So they're still in synagogues. And slowly there's a period of transition in which uh, the synagogues say, do you believe in Jesus? You have to get out of here. We don't believe in Jesus. We don't believe that stuff. We believe God is one God, the only God. Anybody else claiming to be God is wrong. Get out of here. So they're kicked out. They have to start... Uh, developing the church, right? And this is at the same time as Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is called the birth, the birthday of the church. There's lots of persecution, both from the religious and non-religious uh, communities. Uh, Stephen, St. Stephen, was one of the first martyrs. And what was interesting is Paul, yes, who wrote most of the New Testament, was present and complicit in the martyrdom of St. Stephen. So we see that he is a very devout Jew, but then he has his conversion experience, right? Um, Peter, right, one of the 12 apostles, was very important, and Paul, of course, who was not an apostle, but was converted, was very important. Uh, then there was the Council of Jerusalem, which, which spoke into that transition period. How are you supposed to be Jewish, or can you be Christian without being Jewish? <clears throat> What about if you're a Gentile? Do you have to follow these Jewish rules? And the Council of Jerusalem said, you don't have to follow all the rules. You don't have to be circumcised. Right? You don't have to be. We're not going to talk about that. I could say thanks be to God, right? But um, that we didn't decide that because, quite frankly, that would have kept a lot of people then. That would have kept a lot of men from converting. You mean, in order to become a Christian, I have to be circumcised because that's what you used to do? But it's not that important in the New Testament? What? So um, that's what happened at the Council of Jerusalem. A few things here. Saul, the, word, the name Saul, is not um, Paul's old name. Right? There's this big misconception that Saul's name was changed to Paul. It's not the case. It's like saying... My name, Michael, in Spanish is Miguel. So imagine that I go down to Mexico for the rest of my ministry and everyone calls me Miguel instead of Michael. And you would say, oh, he changed his name. But he didn't change my name. That's just the translation of my name in the local language. 
Same thing here. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name. Also, ecclesia means people, right? Uh, this uh, is the word for church. Being in the era of the church, ecclesia, the Greek word, means those who are called out. Those who are called out for service uh, into the world. And it does not refer particularly to the building. Then in the twelfth and final part of our arc here, we move into the time of missions. The apostles and disciples had this great commission that Jesus had for us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so what happens? The church expands. And at this time, right, we talked about this as a transition period in which uh, the, those who are Christians still say, well, we think being Jewish is pretty cool too. We like those Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible. We still call that scripture. Um, but particularly after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, uh, the relationship between the, Jew, the Jews and the Christians changes distinctly. Here's a map. I'm not sure if you can see it. Actually, I can zoom in here for a moment. So this is a map of uh, where some of the apostles and disciples, early disciples, went right throughout the world. So you have the, the and this is tradition, right? Not all of this is well documented. This is not all in scripture. But the idea is that they went into all the world, all the known world, to preach the gospel. So you have uh, some of them like James, right, going into Spain, right? In the northwest part of Spain, you still have uh, Santiago de Compostela, or the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, where all these faithful um, pilgrims uh, walk to the place where James is thought to be buried, right? On the other end, all the way over in India, you have St. Thomas, right? The one who's called Doubting Thomas. He went to Madras. I've actually been here to his tomb, his grave. Um, and so they went into all the world. And as they did, things changed, right? Just like languages change, when you don't talk to each other for a while, theologies change slightly too. So this is when we talk about Christianity on a global scale. Uh, we can anticipate that there will be some differences and there will be some changes because um, you can't just pick up a phone and call from Spain over to India like you can't today, right? 2,000 years ago, they didn't have that. So what did they do? They relied on uh, the scriptures that they had and they relied on uh, the memories of what Jesus had actually said. Okay. Now, I want to... Well, I'm actually going to pause for a moment. See if we have any questions. Because that was a lot of material. That was a lot to, to sink in. Yeah, here. Now, I don't understand why God, who knows everything, picked uh, Saul to be the king there, and he knew he was going to fail. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard one. I don't know. I mean, I preached on that this summer, and I'm still not quite sure I understand it. Some would say... It was a judgment against the people because they were denying God as king over them. And they said, we want to be like all those other people. We want you to appoint a king over us. And so God appointed Saul. And it was judgment eventually, but it was a grace to start because he wasn't a terrible king at first. But then he became a, a bad king by the end. But that's a good question. Anyone else for this big art? Do we understand it all? 
maybe a little shaky. But is this helpful to see the big picture? Again, you can zoom in. You can talk about those kinds of questions, right? That's at the level of the coin. You get in and you talk about those little things, but you zoom out, you see a bigger picture, something more is going on there. But I think what's, what's uh, helpful for me is to see that there is this, this that God is our creator, and God um, moves with us, right? When we sin, God is there to pick us up. When we go into exile, places we don't want to go, God is with us, and God brings us Maybe not in our lifetimes, but God is faithful throughout the generations. And that's what's helpful for me with this arc of Bible history, is to be reminded that God is always there. No matter what, God is with us. Yeah? Okay. Now we're going to transition to uh, starting to talk about the nature of Scripture. Right? So this is part B of the class. Uh, but first, I want to start with a beautiful prayer slash poem from C.S. Lewis, and, and he entitles this Footnotes to All Prayers. So he says, he writes, He whom I bow to, and this is there in your handout, you can't see what's here on the screen. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. And when I attempt the ineffable name muttering thou, and dream of fading fancies and embrace in heart, symbols know, which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images of folklore dream, and all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows unaimed unskillfully beyond uh, desert. All men are idolaters, crying unheard to a, to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great, unbroken speech, our living metaphor translate. This is one of my favorite poems, and it's helpful for me in understanding prayer and understanding a lot that I do. But it is, it is there's a lot there. But that's why I wanted to Fabian is a reference to a Greek sculptor, uh, Fabius. But what is Lewis getting at here? Why is it important for our study of Scripture? Well, he's talking about um, divine revelation. How can we know God except that God says, here I am. This is who I am, right? Throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the New Testament, God says, here I am. This is what I am. This is what I do. This is, here I am in my son Jesus. Here I am as the Holy Spirit. This is who I am. But we have to understand that there are limitations and what's called the divine accommodation. And I'm probably going to spell this word wrong because anytime I type it, spell check always tells me I do it wrong. But you get the point. Uh, that this is the divine accommodation. Divine accommodation. Um, that if we understand God to be this being beyond words, but then we have to talk about God, what do we have to do? We have to put God into words. So is our language capable of saying all there is to say about God? Probably not. 
right? That's what those beautiful scenes. Whenever, whenever there's a, a scene in the Bible of somebody who has a vision of heaven or gets to heaven, or and they try to describe what it is, it's like uh, rivers of emeralds and, and people of gold. It's like I don't know how to describe this. My words aren't enough, so they try their best. But in the same way, we have to admit that. Um, all words, not just talking about heaven, but all words that talk about God are just not enough. We can try, and God gives us language. God gives us uh, the capacity. We are made in the image of God after all, so we can do a good job, but we're not doing a complete job because we can't. So this is, again, divine accommodation. So in his uh, wonderful book called Sacred Word, Broken Word, which uh, I highly recommend, uh, by Kenton Sparks, he writes that uh, all scripture is accommodated, oh, that's how it's spelled, there you go, accommodated discourse for the reason that on every page of scripture, God has adopted the words and viewpoints of us, of finite, fallen human authors, as the words and viewpoints of his holy book. So Sparks writes, the entire Bible is accommodated discourse, right? So, I can, like when, when my son Theo asks me big questions, I can give him the full answers, right? And the distance between me and Theo uh, is not all that great. When you think about God as being, for whom we, we will not know the fullness of God even throughout all of eternity. We'll get to the end of eternity of which there is no end. And we'll say, what's next? Tell me more about yourself. What else can you do? What else have you done? So, if we're, again, we're, the distance between my, me and Theo, between God and us, is so much greater. So there's, the language has to be simplified. There has to be reductionism, right, at play here in order for us to understand God. But what's beautiful is that God does that. God does it all. He doesn't have to. I don't have to answer Theo's thousand why questions, right? But I try because I think it's worth being in a relationship with him. In the same way God tries, even if we won't get it all. So revelation in itself, anytime God speaks to us, he has to use our thought forms, our words. And human language cannot fully capture the divine. So these are some longer quotes. And again, I wrote them there for you so that you can have them to digest them a little further. Um, but we want to talk about the nature of Scripture. And we've only got a little bit of time here, so I, I don't want to rush through too much here. But um, essentially, when we talk about creation, and then we talk about the fall, whether or not it's historical or not, we have to admit that there are things that are broken. There, um, we are broken people. We are not always nice to each other. We do mean things. Uh, on the road today, right? You probably cut somebody off, or somebody cut you off, and you may have said a word you didn't think it was very nice to say on a Sunday, right? That's okay, right? We we can admit we are broken in big ways, in small ways, but also on a universal scale, everything breaks down. Why? Because it is part of creation. Because there is, in, in physics terms, there is entropy. Everything is slowing down. Everything is breaking down. There is erosion and deterioration. Everything is part of creation. And God says, I will renew all things 
the end. Right? So this is a promise we hold on to. But here, we're not quite at the end. So here, in this precious meantime, between creation and the restoration of all things, we have to admit that all things are in need of restoration. Often, we don't include the Bible in that. Often, we say, oh, the Bible, that's God's holy book, so it is perfect, cover to cover. It is almost as if we think it came right from heaven, and right to Moses, and then, whoop, there it goes. And we just put it on the Xerox machine and copied it a bunch. It's not quite that simple, right? If our, if our theology of creation and our understanding of sin and brokenness and fallenness uh, is firm at the foundation, we have to understand that everything is affected by that. Not just, not just the cues you're sitting in that have been restored I don't know how many times, right? But the whole of the, the planet and all planets, the whole of the universe, is breaking down. That includes Scripture. And, the, and uh, so this comes from, again, from Sparks. And he says, we believe we are broken and sinful. And that quality extends to the whole of creation. And since those Scriptures stand within creation, we must admit that the pervasiveness of sin and brokenness even affects our holy authoritative Scripture. God's creation, which is good, nevertheless includes evil. But these flaws, these flaws in creation should not be blamed on God, but rather on humanity and a sinful fallen state. God's written word, which is good, nevertheless includes evil. This is hard to swallow, right? I read this book and my life has changed. My whole faith was, was upended. But these flaws in Scripture should not be blamed on God, but again, on humanity and its sinful fallen state. All is in need of redemption, and we must render thoughtful judgments about where they are rightly ordered and where they reflect the fall's disordering effects. And uh, another page, Sparks writes that one reason the Bible is not a simple, straightforward guidebook for life is that the Bible actually stands within the created fallen. So, Scripture requires interpretation. I see no hands, so I'm going to keep going. Sounds like, sounds like I'm back at Worcester College. I know, right? You're welcome. <clears throat> so, if Scripture is within this fallen nation, uh, fallen creation, <coughs> can it reflect the fullness of God's character? Dan? I think that's the question I was going to ask. I think if if is it the interpretation that's tainted or is it actually the word? Because the word has stood and we're told in the Bible that it will stand, right? It, it is the word of God and, and or is it a process that the word will be lived out? So it is our is it our interpretation or God did intend it? that it would be a process of working out, or does the word stand alone never to change? Those are the three right. things I see. Yeah, so could it always be, I'm trying to summarize your question for the recording for the folks in the back. Uh, is it that our interpretation is flawed, or is it that the book, the words of scripture are flawed? I would say yes. <laughs> um, in my Southern Baptist days, I would have given you a different 
because I would have, right along with you, I would have said the words of Scripture are absolutely from God. They are perfect. They cannot be fallen. They cannot be flawed. They are holy from God. Without error, holy inspired. And I'm not questioning all of those things here. I'm just saying that's the answer I would have given. And now, it's a lot harder to give to stand and be that firm on things. Because if my theology of creation and, and the fallen nature of the world and the universe is, is firm, I can't leave Scripture out of that. As if God himself penned it and sent it down, you know, to be a carrier pigeon or angel or whatever. I can't do that. Uh, and so there has to be have to allow there to allow for their allow for some room that yes these words point us to God just like that prayer that, that footnote to all prayers these point us to God but language isn't enough it doesn't do the whole job and so the words themselves for me the words themselves are not like a magical incantation Right? Which some people through the ages have said, these are the holy words. They're not holy because they are words. They are holy because the Spirit speaks through them. That is my understanding of inspiration, is that the Spirit speaks through the Scriptures. They're not just this stable text that we have to read and read and read, and whatever we understand in our mind, that says is what it is. We have to have the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray for illumination every single Sunday. Without the Spirit, all of our reading of the Bible is for nothing. Because the Spirit has to still speak. It's a good question. It doesn't end there. The, my, the answer can we keep going. Um, I want to, uh, realizing our time here, we've got about 10 minutes. We can interpret scriptures in a lot of ways. We started touching on this um, earlier. There's there are two particular ways. We could do a literal reading. We could do a, a figurative reading. And there's many more beyond this. But we could we talk about things like the primeval history in Genesis 1 through 11. Does it just, is it like a science textbook? Does it describe what actually happened exactly how it, ha how it happened? We could say that. Some people do. Some people are trying to put it into textbooks in school, saying, yes, absolutely, it's science. <clears throat> For me, I think it's a confusion of genre. We've talked about before, uh, if in a thousand years somebody picks up Harry Potter and then starts looking for Hogwarts in England, they're going to have a problem, right? Because Harry Potter is a work of fiction. I'm not saying that the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11 is a work of fiction, but I think if we read Harry Potter like it's history, and we read Genesis 1 through 11 like it's a science book, we have a problem. The writers never intended it to be a science book. They intended it to be a story describing that God is a God who creates. Right? God is a God who is with us. Okay. What about the parables? All those parables that Jesus told, are they true? Are they historical? I was told as, as, a, as a young child that absolutely, if Jesus said it, it had to be true. But how true? Was it true in that it, it gave a sense of our obligation through story. The story of the prodigal son, did it really happen? Or was it an illustration? Same, we can talk about the story of Jonah. Was Jonah really swallowed by a big fish? Sometimes called a whale. What about Job? That whole big story of Job. Does, is God really that uh, vindictive and mean and testing? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I think 
we, we have to admit that there is a literal surface interpretation, and then we can say, maybe these stories aren't just meant to, to depict uh, literal history. Maybe these stories are meant for a bigger reason. As in Job, we can say, it's not just, it's not that you did something bad and something bad then happens to you. It's not karma. For me, that's what Job's all about. It's not karma. Sometimes bad stuff happens and you didn't do anything to deserve it. Right? It's bigger than we know. But then, what about when Jesus uh, instituting the Last Supper says, this is my body, this is my blood. If we read that very literally, well, you're in the wrong church. You need to go down to the Catholic Church. Because there, they believe, when you celebrate communion, this is my body. Wow, you are actually, when the priest does, does the words and institution, that wafer actually becomes flesh of Jesus. Powerful, mysterious, beautiful. But that's not what we believe here in the Presbyterian faith, right? It's really only the Catholics, the Catholic Church, that believes that. Same thing with the cup and the, and the blood. Uh, you've got this there for you. I'm going to skip over it, although it's a great quote. Essentially, uh, like a mosaic, like a stained glass window, right? We see the whole of something, and we can rearrange it to say anything we want. That is why Scripture can be dangerous. Not just without the Holy Spirit guiding us and inspiring us in the reading, but also outside of community. Without a community of faith in which we're reading the Scriptures, we can understand things wrongly. So Irenaeus gave, a, gave a, an idea of somebody who had this, this, this stately king in a mosaic while somebody comes along and says, well, hold on a second, let's rearrange those. And, oh no, it's not a king. That was wrong. It's a fox. Or it's a dog. Well, what does scripture really say? The point of this kind of illustration is that we can make it say what we want it to. That's dangerous. Right? That's why you have heretics. That's why you have different denominations throughout the world, right? We're not just one church, one individual denomination. We are multiple because we disagree on things. That the Bible says. It's not clear, crystal clear at all times. Um, no. Okay. There are texts of terror. These are also there. Uh, essentially, the texts of terror are those difficult passages. Like, did God really say to Joshua... Uh, don't destroy everyone there in the land. Just commit some mass genocide. What do we do with those? You've got those quotes there in your handout. Um, but essentially, sometimes Scripture's natural meaning runs contrary to our understanding of who God is. What do we do with that? We have to hold on to three buckets. This is an image that comes from uh, Pastor, Methodist Pastor Adam Hamilton, great writer, great preacher. And he says... Um, but all scripture, some of it falls into bucket one, bucket two, bucket three. Bucket one are scriptures that express God's heart, character, and these are timeless. And these are for everyone, everywhere, all time. That's bucket one. Bucket two, scriptures that express God's will in a particular time. That's not meant for us. That's a particular time in the past. Um, but those are no longer binding, like circumcision, right? The Temple of Jerusalem says, we don't need to do that anymore. That would fall into bucket two. Those Old Testament laws must be circumcised. The Council of Jerusalem said, we're not doing that anymore. It falls into bucket two. Bucket three, from Adam Hamilton, says these are scriptures that never fully express the heart, character, or will of God. And this is the hardest bucket. The bucket we like to think that isn't there. 
We like bucket one. We're okay with bucket two. Bucket three, a little harder uh, to hold on to. We already know bucket one scriptures, right? Uh, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. Uh, most of the Bible fits into this category, bucket one. Bucket two, again, uh, things like uh, animal sacrifices, which I assume we don't do anymore. Anybody do any animal sacrifices I need to know about? Is that a hand, Debbie? I'm joking. No. <laughs> Going back to C.S. Lewis's prayer and what, what Kenton Spark said about uh, how we get scripture, is it um, if it stands within the fallen nature of creation, just got there. Because people who were faithful Jews and Christians throughout the ages said, well, that had to be God, right? That had to be God who did X, Y, and Z. Or after the fact, maybe. Some would say, uh, we just killed all those people in those 31 towns and cities. Well, it was our God-given right, because God said that's the promised land. So I can easily see people saying, after the fact, God told me to do that. Did that make it in Scripture? These are things we don't know. This is where reading and interpreting the Bible gets a little iffy. 
But without these containers to hold these thoughts in, we can't say everything is, is in one, because then we still need to circumcise, we still need to kill a priest's daughter who's a prostitute. Those are weird things that we still have to hold on to. Um, but when we start separating them out and saying, Every, this stuff falls here, this stuff here, there, it's a little easier to hold it in tension. Yeah? Great question. Dan? I think it's easy to give up animal sacrifice and put that in bucket three. But the one that I struggle with the most for my friends is that Christ is the only way to God or to heaven, the, 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 the only. And boy, if they wanted to put that in three and I want to put it in one, where there's a hole in somebody's bucket. And I, how, yeah. how, how do we get that over that bucket list? And that's, that's, that's hard. Yeah, so the question was, for someone, you know, what, what I think is in bucket one, that Jesus is the Savior and you believe in Christ to find salvation, that's in bucket one. Uh, for someone else, that's in bucket three. Maybe that's not for all time and for, you know. Um, yeah, so this is, this is an idea from within the church first. But I would actually contend that Jesus, as our Lord and Savior for, for sake of salvation, is actually... Hope, hear me out here, is a bucket two proposition. Otherwise, everyone who came before Jesus is lost and condemned to hell forever. But if bucket two says, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus is Lord, here on out. It was for a particular time. That time goes from Jesus' birth on through eternity. But there was a time before Jesus when the way to salvation was not through Christ. So I actually, right, we can talk about these all day. Where do you put stuff? It's a great question. I have one more question. I think, did you have your hand I was just thinking that it seems like the Jews look at everything they did and they don't dodge it. So to deny that they did these things would be against what they, what we are doing. We're to look at everything that we have done and, and remember
through the word. And we thank you, God, that we uh, have submitted ourselves to talk about the difficulties within Scripture. All these buckets and all these ideas of, of difficult passages, texts of terror, the um, things in there we don't want to um, read. We want to imagine as if they aren't there. But as faithful followers of you, we have to read them. We have to deal with them. We have to figure out how do we interpret, how do we read, how do we be most faithful. So we thank you for um, being able to ask the hard questions. We thank you that your spirit is with us. May your spirit go with us throughout our week until we meet again. We give this uh, week over to you. In Jesus' name.